0: Just a quick recap because it's uh, some of what uh, I'm going to say today. Well, a lot of it builds on, relates to what I said uh, last week. So, last week I talked about a, a kind of appraisal you can make of people, um, appraising them as racist, which I take to be heavily normatively loaded. It's one of the most uh, significant criticisms you can make of someone these days is to say that they're racist. And I asked whether, of a particular class of people, those people who had uh, have explicit egalitarian beliefs, but implicit uh, racist, in now in inverted commas for the purposes of the sentence at least, uh, racist attitudes, whether they are indeed Racists um, and there's good evidence that or there's reason to believe at very at, at very least that lots of people in the in this room will fall into that category, so are you racist? am I racist and I gave the uh, question a qualified no answer. Uh, I went through three models, the doxastic model, according to which race uh, racism depends on having racist beliefs, and I said um, the answer there was no, and maybe a little, because uh, the, the person with, with conflicting uh, attitudes has non-racist beliefs, and perhaps racist uh, attitudes which are not beliefs, but nor are they entirely unbelief-like. So they, they, can be, they uh, justify the no, and maybe a bit... Answer, and the same answer can be given on the behavioural model of racism. The model is uh, racism is as racism does. Uh, most of our behaviours are predicted by our explicit attitudes. Uh, most of our uh, most of the variance in behaviours, more than eighty percent, is explained by explicit attitudes or predicted by explicit attitudes, uh, and that too gives us grounds for a resounding no and maybe a weak yes. And um, finally, on the effective model, according to which racism consists in having racist feelings, I said the picture was more mixed. It was harder to know what to say about about us, whether we're racist, because um, we do have feelings that affects, that satisfy that condition. We have others that conflict with them. I don't think we have the data, and certainly I don't know the data, which can justify uh, or even motivate uh, an educated guess about what proportion of our feelings fit into each category. All right, so today I want to turn to a different question, Uh, from this appraisal question, are we racist, to a responsibility question. The question now is, Are we responsible for actions caused by our implicit attitudes? Remember I said that uh, implicit attitudes predict a relatively small proportion of our actions. Nevertheless, um, there are reasons to believe that some of those actions um, are going to be morally significant. So they're small influences, but small influences can make decisive differences in some circumstances. And those circumstances are not trivial. So for instance, if you think about those CV studies I mentioned last week, for most jobs that a minority person applies for, or a woman, because this applies as much to um, sexist implicit attitudes as racist or homophobic implicit attitudes, for most jobs the person who's on the receiving end of this kind of uh, bias, is not going to be clearly the best candidate. In fact, it's quite likely they'll be one of several well-qualified candidates. And in that kind of circumstance, in which things are relatively evenly balanced, um, the small effect can have, make a decisive difference. It can explain across uh, patterns of hiring, across large numbers of, uh, of hires, why it is that disproportionately few say black people are hired, given that they were just as well qualified. For each instance it would be hard to say the black person should have got that job. No, the, more likely the black person had, should have had an equal chance at getting that job as several other uh, majority group members. And it's only across the, the full range you'll be able to say bias must be playing a role. So um, although they're small effects, they, can have, uh, they ha- can have very important upshots for people's lives. So this matters. I'm going to be concerned with uh, a- only a certain set of cases. Um, those cases in which the following counterfactual is true had the person's explicit attitudes controlled their behavior alone, uh, the action wouldn't have had the moral character it actually has. So there are grounds for describing the moral character of the action as racist, sexist, homophobic. Uh, And the reason it has that character the reason it is discriminatory, the reason it weighed the qualifications of the white male more heavily, for example, is because of the person's implicit attitudes, so that our counterfactual holds. Had it not been for those counter, that, uh, implicit attitudes affecting, modulating uh, processing, cognitive processing, a different decision would have been made. So it's that set of um, cases I'm going to be interested in. Now, I'm asking about our moral responsibility uh, for these actions. Um, Let me say a few words about what I mean by moral responsibility in this context. Uh, So philosophers use the word responsibility or synonyms like accountability Uh, In a variety of different ways. Answerability is another one that Gary Watson likes. Um, And I don't, I have no wish to try to decide between these ways of using the word. Uh, Like all of these words, uh, they have. They probably do are used by ordinary people in in a, in a variety of overlapping but slightly different ways, and we can precisify the word in any way we want to capture one of these ways in which the folk use it. Um, so I don't want to you know argue that, uh, for example, the kind of appraisal sense of responsibility that Apley has, according to which to call somebody responsible is just to say that they they don't live up to a certain standard, I don't want to say that's not responsibility, it's not the sense I have in mind. I have in mind a sense of responsibility which I'm just going to stipulate and also uh, claim it's central to folk use and also very obviously important. It's sometimes called the basic desert sense of responsibility. The basic desert sense of responsibility is this, (coughs) if an agent is responsible For an action or a state of affairs, then just in virtue of that fact, they deserve uh, certain kinds of treatment. Just in virtue of uh, that fact, that's a past-looking, backwards-looking fact. Uh, It brackets all kinds of forward-looking considerations. So this is uh, the basic desert sense of responsibility: is a non-consequentialist sense. So in the the serious kinds of cases, it brackets uh, concerns with incapacitation, deterrence, rehabilitation. Uh, It's the retributive sense of responsibility. Um, Now that's obviously an important sense of responsibility, in part because the criminal justice system is very clearly... um, Largely motivated, not entirely, but largely motivated, motivated by retributive concerns. If uh, the prison, the criminal justice system, uh, uh, was consequentialist in its motivations, um, then, for example, murderers who have extremely low recidivism rates would probably get much shorter sentences than they do. Uh, And indeed, there'd be grounds for all kinds of uh, incarceration of people who are not being convicted of any crimes on predictive grounds. There's no doubt that the criminal justice system is very largely uh, sensitive to retributive concerns. It's also, uh, I think, clearly a central sense of responsibility. Uh, The evidence comes from psychology when you ask ordinary people. uh, John Darley's done a lot of work along the, uh, this kind of line. So, as fiery Cushman, you ask people about their blame and punishment judgments. Blame and punishment judgments track each other very closely. Those judgments are <coughs> almost entirely insensitive to consequentialist considerations, um, and this can be measured in a variety of ways. Uh, 98% of the variance in folk blame and punishment judgments are explained by retributive concerns alone. Basically, the folk don't care about whether punishment is going to deter, incapacitate, (coughs) rehabilitate. Um, So it's that retributive sense of responsibility I'm going to be concerned with, obviously for most of the actions. Explained by the uh, implicit attitudes of most of us in this room, uh, criminal punishment isn't isn't an issue. Uh, nevertheless, we might deserve certain things. We might deserve to feel ashamed. We might uh, deserve to be censured. Um, again, do we deserve these things? Not. Would it be good for us to feel ashamed because that might motivate us to change our behaviour? Would censuring us be good because that would um, lead us to pay more attention? Setting that kind of consequentialist consideration aside. Final um, notes on um, what I mean by responsibility, I'm concerned only with direct responsibility here. So there's a literature on implicit bias and responsibility and I think unfortunately these things in that literature are sometimes run together. Um, Indirect responsibility is very important and an interesting question here, but it's not my question. So indirect responsibility is responsibility you might have for an action in virtue of what you have done or failed to do prior to the time of the action. So in the implicit bias case, uh, there are many things we might do. Uh, So for example, the example I used last week, it's been found that uh, uh, when symphony orchestras hold blinded auditions, that is they have the musicians audition for uh, positions in the orchestra, behind a screen so that the people who are assessing their playing are not influenced by gender or race, it's been found that the hiring decisions um, are less biased towards women. That was the, in fact what they had enough data for. Um, now. If I'm in the position of managing a symphony orchestra and I know that, and I, f- or, uh, 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 or being on the hiring committee in a symphony orchestra, and I know these facts, and I could implement such a procedure, and I fail to, then whether or not I'm directly morally responsible for my sexist hiring, I'm plausibly indirectly responsible for my sexist hiring, because there were things I could have done and omitted to do, such that had I done them, I wouldn't have uh, engaged in sexist hiring uh, practices. So that's indirect responsibility. I'm not going to be talking about it for a couple of reasons. Uh, One because uh, although there is data out there uh, on what we can do, that data is inconsistent um, and a second is because all the data we have suggests that although there are things we can do both to uh, mitigate or moderate our own implicit attitudes and to prevent them being expressed in our actions, those Uh, The set of things we can do, there's no suggestion, I think, there's no plausible suggestion, that they will eliminate uh, the implicit bias or prevent them being expressed. So the question of direct responsibility will remain an issue, even if we do all the things that we should do. Even if we're well motivated and uh, sincere in seeking to eliminate them and in seeking to circumvent them. Okay, final preparatory remark. Um, I'm going to adopt a slightly unusual methodology, at least in the context of debates over moral responsibility. So, the standard methodology in these debates is reflective equilibrium, which is a standard methodology across um, moral philosophy and also quite a standard uh, methodology in many other areas of philosophy. With reflective equilibrium, the idea is uh, you have a theory uh, and you attempt to apply it to cases, and you take (coughs) your intuitive judgments about those cases as data to test the theory. So you're working from two ends uh, simultaneously. You're you're attempting to uh, attain a reflective equilibrium between your theories and principles on the one hand, and your intuitive judgments about cases on the other. So you might have a theory, uh, toy example, hackneyed example, that uh, consequentialism is uh, true, that is, a simple version of consequentialism: we should maximize the amount of happiness in the world. And somebody comes along and says, "What about a case like this? You can imagine a case in which torturing an innocent child to death maximizes, increases uh, happiness in the world, because although you know the child's extremely unhappy, and you have to take that away from the amount of happiness in the world, uh, there may be people who uh, enjoy seeing." children tortured so much that their pleasure outweighs the uh, displeasure of the child. And if you're applying this methodology you'll probably say, there are a variety of things you can say, but one thing you might say is, I just can't accept that. I need to revise my principle. that intuition, the 1st pass judgement, that, that would be wrong. Torturing an innocent child to death for fun is wrong. It's just too powerful and I'm going to revise my theory in the light of that fact. Now, I'm not taking a stand here on whether that approach is uh, one which should be utilized uh, in other areas of philosophy. Um, As I'm sure many of you know, it's now highly controversial, this methodology, in the light of uh, work in. Uh, experimental philosophy in particular, which has claimed to show that our intuitions don't give us uh, insight into the truth, they don't track our conceptual mastery, but they track things like uh, class, culture, things that are plausibly irrelevant to whether you know, this is a case of justified uh, action or whether this is, this is knowledge, whatever it might be. Uh, I'm not taking a stand on those debates here, but I'm not treating intuitions as data for the, uh, in this context. And the reason is local. The reason is that uh, all the evidence we have on how uh, we engage in responsibility attribution, and we have a lot of evidence from uh, psychological science on how ordinary people, and we're all ordinary people for these purposes, how we judge the responsibility of other people, uh, we do so by attributing mental states to them. So uh, we have implicit machinery which generates those intuitions and those, uh, in, the, that machinery works by attributing certain kinds of mental states to the agents. And my bet is that those mental states are more or less the states of folk psychology, beliefs and desires and intentions. But implicit attitudes, as I argued last week, are not states which feature in um, folk psychology. They're not beliefs, uh, nor are they associations, as many psychologists have claimed. I don't know if associations feature in folk psychology, and I don't know if the machinery uh, which generates intuitions in these cases uh, could uh, attribute associations uh, as inputs be that however, however it may be, they're not associations, they're not beliefs, There's something in between. There's some sui generis uh, mental states which uh, we, we didn't have a name for until I introduced one. I call them patchy endorsements. So because this machinery takes folk psychological uh, states as inputs, it works by attributing such states to agents. We ought to expect our intuitions to be off track in these cases. So instead of asking uh, or taking seriously first-pass judgments about can agents be responsible in cases like this, I just want to turn to the data about what we know about implicit attitudes and ask whether agents who perform actions with regard uh, to which that counterfactual is true, that is, had the action been controlled by their explicit attitudes alone, it would have had a different uh, moral character. Do these agents, in those circumstances, uh, satisfy the conditions laid down by theories of moral responsibility? And I'm going to look at two theories of moral responsibility. um, Or I will in any case if I have time. The first one is by far the most popular and it's a control-based theory. The second one uh, is a rival theory, a rival uh, view to the control-based theory, uh, which has been gaining a lot of traction recently. It still remains very much a minority view, but some quite influential philosophers have been defending it in uh, recent years. And this is this goes by various names, uh, attributionism is one, uh, quality of will theories. Angela Smith has introduced, uh, has called them updated real self views, Um, and I'm just going to, I'm not going to talk about the specifics of um, of these views. I'm not going to talk about Smith's own view or Scanlon's view or um, the view of George Sher. Um, I will talk. I will try to use generic versions of these theories to the extent I can. So. I'm going to start with control. So I think control is probably the most intuitive account of moral responsibility uh, for the folk. It's hard to tell because uh, folk judgments of responsibility are sensitive to all kinds of things. Uh, they're sensitive to harms, for example, independent of uh, whether the agent possessed control. But if you're going to systematize uh, folk judgments, in a way that discards those parts of folk judgments that probably can't be justified, you may well end up with a control-based theory. It's certainly highly intuitive. It's the the, uh, theory that appears to lie behind the maxim that uh, ought implies can. Roughly, the idea is that agents... a necessary condition of moral responsibility is that agents exercise Uh, a sufficient degree of control over their actions or over a state of affairs in order to be morally responsible for it. If I promise to pick you up at the airport and I fail to, if I didn't control the fact that um, I was unable to pick you up at the airport or the the fact that you were not picked up at the airport, then it looks like I have a a very good excuse, uh, you know. I was driving to the airport and there was uh, was an accident in front of me and I tried an alternative route and lo and behold there was another accident there. I didn't control the fact that I failed to pick you up uh, at the airport and it seems like I have a very good excuse. All right. You sometimes encounter the following argument for why agents are not morally responsible (coughs) for actions caused by their implicit attitudes due to their failure to exercise a sufficient degree of control. It goes like this. Control has epistemic conditions. I can only control things if I'm aware of them. So this uh, lecture theatre was rearranged. between last lecture and this one, I wasn't aware of that fact, plausibly that entails I didn't exercise any control over whether uh, it was rearranged. I've got to, um, to know that a state of affairs obtains in order to control it. Uh, if you don't tell me you're going to be at the airport, and I have no reason to expect that you're at the airport, it's going to be a bit rich of you to blame me uh, for failing to pick you up. Yes. I could have gone to the airport, but why would I have? Never asked me to pick you up before, and I didn't control the fact that I failed to pick you up at the airport. So here's the quick first pass argument. Implicit attitudes are unconscious mental states. We're not aware of the way they modulate our behavior. Therefore, we don't exercise control over the ways in which they modulate their behavior, and therefore, if they they influence the moral character of our actions in, 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 uh, in various ways. We don't control that moral character. That first pass argument uh, needs some refinement. It needs some refinement in virtue of the fact – or in light of the fact – that there is some evidence that implicit attitudes are not unconscious mental states. It uh, depends what we, we mean by conscious mental states. Uh, there's a debate in the literature about what it means for a state to be conscious. Um, but I want to avoid that and say there is some evidence, although far from decisive, that at very least agents are aware of the content of their mental states, uh, of their implicit attitudes. So that avoids some <laughs> of the debate. Um, some people would. So that's not sufficient for a mental state to be conscious. Um, as I mentioned last week, uh, if you ask people about their gut reactions, at least there's some evidence they'll tell you their gut reactions in ways that diverge from what they say their real uh, beliefs are, but which better track their implicit attitudes. Still that first pass argument nevertheless looks like it has legs even in light of that fact because it's not sufficient um, that I know that I have implicit attitudes with a certain content and even know that they may influence my behavior whether that hasn't been probed but it's it's a plausible inference from knowing you have certain gut reactions to uh, concluding that they may influence your behaviour. That's not enough to give you control over the way in which those attitudes influence your behaviour. You've got to be able to be aware at the time how they impact on your behaviour. And all the evidence suggests that we can't, we're not aware. These things are not introspectable, they work subpersonally, below the level of per, uh, personal awareness and when they work, people confabulate reasons uh, for their actions, which appear to them satisfactory. So just to give you one uh, quick example, uh, Uman and Cohen did this experiment where they, um, they gave this their participants the CVs of two potential applicants for the job of police chief, one male, one female. One of them had lots of experience as a cop, come up through the ranks. The other one didn't, but but unlike the first one, they had um, great educational background. All this relevant qualifications. um, Degree in criminology, degree in sociology, an MBA, whatever it might be. Um, And what they did is half the subjects got the uh, male with lots of street experience and the female with lots of education and the other half got them reversed. They simply switched the names to produce this. And both groups of subjects uh, overwhelmingly chose the male as the best applicant, the better applicant for police chief. They were asked to justify it and they gave what looks like plausible justifications for it. So when it was the uh, male with lots of street experience, they said, oh, look, you know, the woman looks really well qualified for the job, but you know, this is police chief. You really have to have policing in your bones to get this job. So that's why I went for the male. And in the other arm of the experiment, they said, oh, look, you know, the woman looks really well qualified for the job. It's true, but this is police chief. You know, you've got you've got to manage a multi-million dollar budget. You've got to speak to the press. It's, you know, in some case, it's like an administrative job, really. Um, lots of street experiences, great. But what you need is lots of education. Now, both of those stories, confabulations, rationalizations, look pretty plausible, and I can just see myself uh, in that experiment, thinking, "Look, I know I could be implicitly." Uh, prejudiced against women, and I've really got to make sure I choose the best applicant. I mustn't be influenced by gender. What can I do? It's just clear that the male is the better applicant. No matter which condition I'm in, I may see it that way. How does this work? Well, uh, there's lots of evidence that when we make assessments, um, we're influenced by uh, and we're rationally influenced by lots of subpersonal processes which just narrow down the search field. They say, here are the things that are relevant, here are the things that aren't. Uh, we just feel better about some options than others. And lacking this machinery, as um, we know, or at least there's good evidence from people uh, with uh, ventromedial prefrontal cortex uh, damage who lack this machinery to. Uh, generate this kind of intuitive judgment as a way of narrowing the search space. We lack it. We are paralyzed by indecision. VPMF, VMPFC patients, who lack this machinery, may have preserved intelligence, but they can't make decisions. You know, uh, faced with the, the question, where should we eat tonight? Think, oh, look, you know, this one's got better cuisine. That's a better location. That one's better ambience. That one's cheaper. Who knows? Um, you need to rely on this machinery, but this machinery can make a fool of you in circumstances like this where it's not tracking good reasons, it's tracking bad reasons. So I suspect we don't exercise this kind of personal level control over our behaviour. But I don't think that's sufficient to show that we're off the hook. And the reason is this. although personal level control is an impressive kind of control and (coughs) is plausibly sufficient for moral responsibility, it's also very plausible that it's not necessary for moral responsibility. What is control? Control consists in, here I'm just following people like John Martin Fisher, um, big name in the the moral responsibility literature, control just is, or at least uh, a reliable guide to control, is tracking of reasons. Um, So Fisher and Fisher and Revisa, um, his collaborator, uh, talk about moderate reasons responsiveness as a sufficient condition for moral (coughs) responsibility where moderate reasons responsiveness consists in a capacity to track reasons, which they call reasons receptivity, and to respond to some of those reasons. Uh, reasons reactivity. Enough of that, and you've got enough control for moral responsibility. Now, a lot of this reasons tracking is subpersonal, it's well below the level of personal uh, awareness. If you think about the really impressive performance of musicians, athletes, Um, Very often, they can't tell you the reasons they're responding to, but they are responding to them. In fact, very often, they report an absence of consciousness of what they're responding to. So, for example, uh, uh, notoriously, perhaps, jazz musicians will report being surprised by what they play. They're improvising and, you know, they play something and they think, gee, where did that come from? Clearly, uh, they didn't. Uh, deliberatively plan the phrase beforehand. We're all virtuosos, most of us are not virtuoso, jazz musicians, but we're all virtuosos at one thing, and that's talking. And we do this all the time in, in speech. So I don't know if you've ever had the experience of making a pun and thinking to yourself, is that deliberate or not? I'm not really sure. There are clear cases, you know, you think of a great pun, you wait for the right moment and, uh, and you roll it out. And there are clear c- cases of inadvertent parts where you don't even notice it until somebody points it out. But I think the more standard case is probably it's sort of intentional because the subpersonal uh, machinery which uh, generates semantic content, allowing you to think about you know, meaning without worrying too much about how the meaning is expressed, that machinery tracks reasons. And it's, it's capable of this kind of virtuoso performance, some people, much more so than others, of course, uh, in, vir- in virtue of the fact that this machinery is better tuned up to that space of reasons. So what we need to ask is whether the subpersonal machinery, insofar as it has implicit attitudes as components, is sufficiently reasons tracking. To realize control sufficiently, reasons tracking some control is not enough. Uh, quick example: uh, suppose I elbow you in the ribs, and you bl- you you blame me for elbowing you in the ribs. I say I've got an excuse. Say the reason I elbowed you in the ribs is I put my hand on the hot plate and it was on, and uh, this. This is kind of subpersonal control. A reflex kicks in, making me jerk my hand back. It's subpersonal, uh, as evidenced by the fact if you've ever done this, uh, you will know the pain actually follows jerking back uh, the hand. The relevant mechanism detects the heat and the danger and triggers the, the movement. Before you are consciously aware that that hot plate is on. Now, so that's tracking of reasons. It's reason receptivity. It's reasons reactivity. But it's not sufficient reasons uh, receptivity and reactivity for moral responsibility. It doesn't have the right kind of systematicity and breadth and continuity that you see. Uh, in a a mechanism that's sensitive enough to reason to realise control. The fact that you were standing behind me is a reason which I may have been aware of, Um, I I knew you were there, you hadn't uh, snuck up on me, but that reason is a reason which in the jargon the mechanism is encapsulated against. The reflex takes as input a narrow domain of information which it takes as input because it's, it's evolutionarily significant, that domain of information. Um, and we share this reflex with much simpler creatures. Other kinds of information simply don't feature in the kinds uh, of, in, in the domain of information in which it's sensitive to. I couldn't modulate my behaviour or the relevant mechanism couldn't modulate my behaviour in light of the fact that you're behind me and that looks like a reason to think that I didn't um, exercise sufficient control so control is patent it's got to be broad systematic and continuous um, by broad I mean um, you will be sensitive to a range of different reasons to modulate your behavior so jerking back your, your hand in uh, response to heat, is, uh, that reflex is sensitive only to a very narrow range of reasons. Maybe only uh, heat. All kinds of other reasons to jerk your uh, hand back. That mechanism won't fire. Maybe you, the person who's capable of domain general processing and can recognise the reasons, maybe you will uh, recognise it as a reason to fire, but the mechanism won't. It's not broadly responsive. Subpersonal mechanisms can be broadly responsive. Think about the musician again. Um, Suppose the question is the control over uh, her volume. Well, um, the pianist may respond to the volume of uh, the other group members, you know, the bass player gets louder, she gets louder. She's responsive to uh, the volume of other uh, players as a reason to modulate her own volume, but she may be responsive to other things as a reason to change her volume. Maybe a key change is a musical reason to, for her to modulate her own volume. Maybe facts about the room which don't affect volume are a reason to change her volume. Uh, this, uh, these are reasons that she grasps as, as a musician without necessarily being conscious of them. It may surprise her that she responded to them. Uh, by systematicity I mean she's capable of recognising these reasons in a broad range of contexts. So maybe she's, uh, she's a, um, a pianist playing with a, with a trio, uh, she recognises dynamics, volume, as a reason to change uh, her behaviour in the context of a trio, but does she also recognise it when she's accompanying a singer, a singer? It's just her and the singer? Does she recognize it when she's uh, playing solo in a, in a, in a piano bar? Um, the broader the, the, the range of reasons, uh, the, sorry, the context, the more systematic. And continuity, uh, sticking with volume, you know, if she detects changes at the level of one and a half decibels as reasons to modulate her own volume, that's pretty discontinuous. If she detects changes uh, in the order of, uh, one-fifth of a decibel, then she's getting much more continuous in sensitivity. All of this can be realised subpersonally. In a virtuoso musician, it will be recognised sub- uh, realized, subpersonally. In fact, there's lots of good evidence that attending to this kind of uh, aspect of your performance, for an expert, makes performance worse, not better. Uh, She's done lots and lots of practice, and in so doing, she's trained up the relevant mechanisms to be sensitive to these kinds of reasons, freeing her, uh, that, that part of the processing which is conscious, to attend to other things, which have all kinds of shaping effects on the lower level mechanisms. So, again, we need to ask, are the mechanisms which have as uh, components implicit attitudes broadly, systematically, and uh, continuously sensitive. Well, I touched on some of the evidence that um, we can adduce here last week, and there was evidence about the semantic sensitivity of implicit attitudes. Sensitivity to reasons just is sensitivity to the propositional or semantic relations uh, between facts. And what we saw is that implicit attitudes are sensitive to some of this kind of information, um, but patchily. So, for example, um, I'll use examples I didn't use uh, last week. Cognitive balance looks like inference over implicit attitudes. Cognitive balance experiments work like this. You induce implicit attitudes uh, in your participants. Again, easily done. Just give them some stories about, uh, about some people. You know, tell them that Group A did all these great stuff, and Group B did all this terrible stuff. Five minutes of that, you induce implicit attitudes. So in the experiment I have in mind, they induced negative implicit attitudes to a group of people. And then they told the subjects, just told them, this is all, you know, conversational, actually, they read it, I think. Um, That group, which you now know did all that terrible stuff, they hate this other group. Group A hates Group B. That's all you know about Group B, is that Group A, who you don't like, hates group B, and then their uh, implicit attitudes towards group B was, were measured. And lo and behold, they had positive implicit attitudes to group B. Now that looks inferential. It looks inferential uh, because if it was simply a spreading of activation uh, pattern, well you've got these negative implicit attitudes and you've got this dislike, more negative stuff, mm-hmm. it should s- just spread to more negative implicit attitudes to uh, But you don't. You get this flipping of valence, which looks like some kind of uh, inferential process. Inferential process over implicit attitudes, plausibly. Okay, so there's some kind of inferential stuff going on. But there's lots and lots of non-inferential stuff going on. I gave you some examples um, last week. I'll give you just one more Today, again, a novel one. This is Rosen's Poison Experiment. And I use this one because Eric Mandelbaum, in his paper arguing an implicit attitude is just our beliefs, uses it. i want to show he gets it wrong. Um, so, in Rosen's Poison Experiment, uh, participants are brought into the lab and then sacks of sugar from the supermarket, clearly labeled you know, with a brand name on them, from the supermarket, Are poured into two jars in front of them and one of the jars is labeled sugar and the other jar is labeled not poison not potassium cyanide and then they are offered drinks sweetened with sugar from each jar and they prefer the drink sweetened from the jar labeled sugar over the one with sugar from the jar labeled not poison, not potassium cyanide. (laughs) Why? Manabam thinks there's some kind of inference going on here. Well, maybe there is, but it's a pretty iffy inference. Um, Taken together with lots and lots of other evidence, the most plausible uh, account of what's going on here is that implicit attitudes are not capable of processing negations. The not, not poison, just gets dropped off so so far as the the implicit attitude is concerned. Um, As I say, taken together with lots of other evidence, because as usual, you can always think of uh, rival interpretations of any experiment, but there's lots (laughs) of evidence that uh, implicit attitudes or implicit processes more generally are simply blind to negation. You can't prime with negations so, – uh, subliminal priming, where uh, words are presented very briefly. You can't prime with not good. You just prime with good if you try. Negation simply doesn't get processed. You can't, process, you can't prime with not bad either. Negation simply doesn't get processed, you just uh, prime uh, with bad. So that's pretty. You know, it's a lot of the inferential stereotype to go missing all at once. You can't handle the negations. This is not a broadly inferentially uh, sensitive process. All right, where does that leave us? Well, here's a first-pass thing we could say. Um, it could be, for all we know, at the current state of knowledge... That how patchy-patchy endorsements are varies from case to case. Could even be from circumstance to circumstance. Sometimes they may be, despite having um, a limitation on how inferentially sensitive they are compared to explicit attitudes, they may be um, inferentially sensitive enough to uh, realise or constitute controlling mechanisms, and sometimes not. So maybe it's an empirical question. Maybe it's a matter of going case to case and saying, well in this case, this person who performed an action, hiring a, a, uh, a white person over an equally qualified, or perhaps even more qualified, um, as a, again, only, uh, only work if they're slightly more qualified. <laughs> Uh, more qualified black person, maybe those mechanisms were sensitive enough to reasons to realise control, and so far as control-based accounts are right, we should blame them. That could be right. I'm tempted by something more general, although maybe not more helpful. And that is this. Think about the set of cases we're interested in. Those are cases in which that counterfactual, had the agent's explicit attitudes controlled behaviour, the action would have lacked the moral character it actually has. Now explicit attitudes we know are richly, broadly, systematically and uh, continuously reasons sensitive. We should not idealise them. there are, uh, uh, for all of us, none of us adheres uh, perfectly to the dispositional stereotype associated with, with our beliefs. And none of our beliefs are completely inferentially promiscuous in Stephen Stitch's phrase. Nevertheless, there are much more uh, sensitive to reasons than uh, implicit attitudes. That gives us strong reasons for thinking that if it was the case that the action would have had a different moral character had explicit attitudes controlled it, then the reason it has the moral character it actually has is due to an impairment of reasons (coughs) responsiveness by the mechanism which actually caused it. And that looks like a a reason to think that the agent didn't control the action or didn't exercise a sufficient degree of control over the behavior. Um, Now as I said this may be unhelpful still in one way and that is because um, it doesn't avoid the question the hard question which we'd confront if we went case by case of probing the implicit attitudes to see whether in this case they happen to have enough propositional structure to realise control. And the reason is that knowing whether our counterfactual is satisfied itself is no easier to answer than the question uh, about the propositional structure of the actions which of the, sorry, the attitudes which actually caused the behaviour. Indeed, they may be the same question. It gives us a general and a priori answer, which we can wield from the, the armchair, but only given that we know the counterfactuals um been satisfied. And knowing that is something which uh, is, to put it at minimum, extremely difficult uh, to answer. In fact, I don't think we have introspective access to uh, to that the question whether that counterfactual is answered, it's very difficult even to tell <coughs> in particular cases whether it's satisfied. Think about that police chief experiment again. For any individual, knowing whether their explicit attitudes uh, would have produced a different answer uh, is well nigh impossible. We only know that implicit attitudes, implicit biases uh, are playing a significant role here by looking at the range of responses across the conditions for a particular participant that fact is inaccessible and even given the full information regarding a particular uh, participant we can't make any kind of very confident judgment. All right So I'm running out of time. Let me very, (coughs) very briefly say something about the uh, deep self-views. So the deep self-views are views according to which you're responsible, not if you controlled the behaviour, but if the behaviour expresses who you most deeply are, who you really are, the quality of your will, in another phrase, beloved people in this literature. And these things can... Uh, dissociate, at least. There are right. plausible cases in which I don't control it, but uh, it's nevertheless deeply expressive of who I am. So what's ex- what does this take, this kind of expression? Well, it takes, um, I take it expression is a causal notion. Uh, expression uh, requires some kind of matching of content. And finally, the, act, the attitude that causes it, must be deeply attributable to me. Um, I think the second condition, the matching of content uh, condition, uh, is one which uh, is an open question whether it's satisfied. So I I think it's appropriate to say that the, the hiring decision might be, say, sexist. It's unclear whether the action, the attitude that causes it, is appropriately described as sexist, for reasons we saw. Um, last week but I'm going to assume that one's satisfied the final condition is does the attitude properly belong to the agent well I think that comes down to is it fully integrated into their the set of uh, attitudes which form the perspective from w- for which or from which things count as reasons for them and indeed the Deep self theorists say this. They say that uh, it's because our uh, behaviours are judgment sensitive, that they're expressive of who they are, that they they uh, express what we take to be reasons. But for uh, an an attitude to cause behaviour such that you can rightly attribute a judgement to the agent or say that they've taken something to be a reason, that attitude's going to have to be integrated into their deliberative perspective. And to cut a long story short, that integration is going to be a matter of the semantic relations between the attitudes uh, and the rest of the deliberative perspective, which we can confidently identify without having a criteria or criterion for what a deliberative perspective is, we can confidently identify many of the uh, attitudes, the explicit (coughs) attitudes um, in particular, which do belong to our deliberative perspective. Now those inferential relations just are the kinds of relations that um, we probe by looking at how um, implicit attitudes are sensitive to reasons. If you look at the evidence, and I won't go through it now, there is evidence that implicit attitudes can be acquired inferentially, actually I've already given you some, there's more I could give you, but there's also evidence that they can be acquired non-inferentially or even counter-inferentially in ways that are uh, in direct conflict with what the person themselves says their reasons um, entail. And that they're el- eliminated non-inferentially, through just counter-conditioning, for example, and fail to be eliminated when there are good inferential reasons to eliminate them, and the person themselves takes them to be good inferential re- uh, reasons. So for this reason, I think our answer to the question on the attributability theory, are these behaviours deeply reflective of us, are exactly parallel to the answers on the control theory. That is to say, um, first, how deeply integrated an implicit attitude is into our deliberative uh, standpoint is going to vary from implicit attitude to implicit attitude. But second, when our kind of factual satisfied, the reason it's satisfied is going to be a failure of integration. Had it been fully integrated into the deliberative perspective, you wouldn't have got this dissociation between what the agent explicitly recognises to be reason-giving and the kinds of facts to which the mechanism responded. So they look like good reasons to at least significantly mitigate moral responsibility on both kinds of theories. Now, I've talked about two kinds of theories. Uh, the control theory is by far the dominant one. The attributability one is, kept, is, you know, is gaining a lot of ground. There are others and I haven't um, attempted to go through them today. Um, I think these are the two most plausible. Let me just finish by something else, saying something different about our obligations. In the end, I think the evidence suggests that if we want to do something about our implicit attitudes, and we should want to do something about our implicit attitudes, all the evidence about what we can do as individuals um, suggests that although there are things we can do, and maybe should do, they are relatively ineffective. Uh, For all the mechanisms of changing your implicit attitudes, um, the evidence suggests that anything you can do by yourself is likely to have effects that persist for only a short time. For all the things you can do on your own to circumvent them or prevent them being expressed, the evidence actually suggests that you are as likely to exacerbate them as uh, minimise them. Um, So there are a number of different experiments in which people have been asked to make an effort to control their implicit attitudes or not to allow crimes to influence their behaviour, and it actually gets worse under those conditions, at least in some of these variants. The exception being when you can do things to simply prevent them being triggered. Take the names off the CV, for example. Since implicit attitudes are almost certainly acquired through acculturation, through some kind of uh, conditioning, the most effective thing we can do isn't by focusing on individual responsibility, but on what groups can do, Uh, particularly the the, the larger scale groups, nations can do, but also smaller groups, universities for for that matter. They can change the patterns of stimuli to which people are exposed, and those things are responsible for the formation of implicit attitudes in the first place. And long-term association through counter-conditioning, a non-inferential process by the way, uh, appears to be the most effective thing we have to change the uh, implicit attitudes of people who've already acquired them. So we do have obligations, but they are social obligations, uh, I think, um, rather than individual obligations. So, although I've argued that the evidence suggests that we are not responsible for the actions caused by uh, implicit attitudes, directly (coughs) responsible for the actions caused by implicit attitudes, we may have uh, demanding indirect obligations to do something about them, and we have them, I think, uh, as members of groups as much as as individuals. Thank you.